0: Grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God, our Father, and from his Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have victory over the grave. Amen. So as we come to the back half of this Revelation series called the Victorious Christ, we get to chapter one. Uh, sorry, chapter 21, and chapter 21 reminds me of an old philosophical question. I want to get philosophical with you this morning. It's a question that I've often pondered myself, and it's one that I've, I've attempted to counsel lot of people through, whether they're neighbors or friends or church members and what have you, and whether they're Christian or not, everyone has this question, and it's a question that you might be dealing with right now. You ready? If God exists and he is both all good and all powerful, then why is there... Right? If God exists and he is both all good and all powerful, then why is there evil in the world? Why do such horrific things happen? It's a totally fair question. And it's usually spoken by people who are, who have or who are in the middle of some intense suffering. Something awful happened to them and they want to know why. Why has this happened? If someone ever wants to ask you that question, you know that... <laughs> Our initial impulse, what is our, as Christians, what is our first impulse? Our first impulse is to get God off the hook as quickly as possible, right? To, to explain things away and to put the best construction on God. We try to come up with these reasons that might be uh, satisfactory. We, we even pry into the hidden will of God, and we're trying to discern things that he has not revealed to us in hopes of finding an answer, But when it comes to that question, can I give you an axiom to live by? Here's your axiom. If God exists, why do bad things happen? Here's your answer. God only knows and he isn't talking. God only knows and he isn't talking. The unsatisfying truth is that we cannot know. And if that's disappointing to you, then buckle up because I've got some good news for you from our Bible text today. But let me spend a moment uh, just dissecting the question. Let's take apart the question from a philosophical perspective. The question about the problem of evil is ultimately one that cannot be asked in an amoral universe. I'll explain what I mean. That question cannot be asked in an amoral universe. In other words, if there is no God, then you've lost the universal standard for judging what is good and what is evil. You are sawing off the branch on which you sit. You see, the only reason that you're asking the question in the first place is because you have categories for what is good and what is evil. You have a natural knowledge of the hidden God. It doesn't mean that you're born with this understanding of who. Within is the. that's a part of your being. Every cry that you've ever uttered in your life of, it's not fair, is a cry of desperation for God to fix everything. But we've, we find that tension unbearable, don't we? We don't want to live with that tension. We don't want to live with the fact that a benevolent God allows a certain allotted time so that he might work his salvific plan. So, here's the move that we make. We do something foolish. We reject God, believing that an amoral universe is more of a comfort, more satisfying. But now what? Now you've lost the ability to call anything evil and call anything good, and the tragedies that you suffer in this life aren't tragic at all, but simply the way the world works. Without God, here's the horrible truth. Without God, you are merely a cosmic accident, gravitationally bound to a floating... ...and everything means nothing. Welcome to Fortress. So in dealing with this problem of evil, here's what I'm getting at. In dealing with this problem of evil, we have this unbearable, both frameworks. One framework with God and one without him, right? And so what is the solution? What's the solution? The only hope that we've got is to turn to God even though we don't understand these things. But it's one thing for us to go to God with our frustrations and with our complaints because Scripture actually encourages us to do that. To go to him in prayer and desperation. God, what's happening? But it's another to demand that God justify himself. You know why? Because he's already done that by raising Jesus from the dead. In the resurrection of Christ, God has shown himself to be true and every man a liar, according to Romans 3. He has already justified himself by raising Jesus from the dead. Now, by virtue of us being created by God, we can can look around the world and know instinctively that something is off. We admire the beauty of creation, but we also witness the, the teeth and the claws in the creation, if I can put it that way. We can all agree upon how naturally lovely certain parts of central Texas are and wherever your home state is. I'm sure it's beautiful. Those things are beautiful. They're wonderful. And in the same breath, we can lament the destruction, the chaos, the devastation that a tornado can cause just like that. And on a human level, in this community especially, we see these these tremendous acts of valor. We see these selfless acts from from our fellow man all the time. People putting their lives on the line for the sake of others and their vocation, whether it's a soldier, a firefighter, a police officer, what have you. People who have the vocation of school teacher, who put in the hours and the hard work to serve their fellow men. But at the same time, at the same time, we're all too aware of the crime rate in our communities. Colleen has that reputation. I've heard that from people. I I mean, I'm just so numb to what goes on at Fort Hood, especially. It has a reputation. This is a murderous city. So common sense and human reason compel us to look around us and see how awful things can be while faith looks to God and cries out to him, the only one who can fix this whole mess. And while faith compels us to cry out to him, faith also rests in the promise of what God is doing through his son, through whom he is fixing everything. You might see Jesus on the cross and wonder, what good is a suffering God? I don't want a suffering God. I want a conqueror. I want a victor. I want a God who's going to come and mop the floor with with Satan. That's what I want. But that's just the point, isn't it? By taking on human flesh by experiencing everything that we do as a human, by living in this sinful world with all of its evils, with all of its hurts, by subjecting himself to the shame of the cross, our Lord has conquered. Again, look to the resurrection as evidence. The victorious Christ, alive Forevermore. Not only has he gained victory for you and for me, not only has he gained the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and salvation, but also for the entire creation. That is how far this redemption goes in its scope, my friends. Not just for human souls, but for the entire creation. In the first two chapters of the Bible, think about this. In the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, we have. The account of creation. Everything is created in order. It's beautiful. and It's perfect. It's made by God out of nothing. God created Adam and Eve. The first human community. A, A marriage relationship through which God would populate and subdue the earth. And God called it very good. It was very good. But we know the story, don't we? Didn't take long until Adam and Eve, as they were tempted by Satan, that they turned away from God's gracious promises. And that's what the essence of sin is, by the way. It's unbelief. It's turning away from God's promises, trusting in something else. And the rest is history. We have the complete marring of the creation by human sin, which is the natural result of being separated from the Creator. A plus B equals C. You turn away from the benevolent creator, this is what you get. So in Revelation 21 and 22, we have a perfect bookend to the first two chapters of the Bible. That's what this is. As we look at these two chapters over the next couple of weeks, it's the bookend to the Genesis account. The first chapters in Genesis tell us the beginning and and what went wrong. And these last two chapters tell us about the ultimate result of Jesus' victory. What does Jesus' coming out of the tomb on Easter morning mean for the creation? His resurrection is only the beginning. Scripture calls him the firstborn from the dead, which means that there's more to follow. Those who by faith in his name will be raised on the last day. But where is God going to place his renewed people? Where's he going to stick us? Is he going to plop us right back into a sinful creation with tornadoes and with all of this stuff, with COVID, and with all of these geopolitical tensions that we live with every day? No, church, that won't do. Jesus' resurrection means not only a resurrection for you and me, but one for the whole creation. All things made new. All things. And that's what this passage in Revelation 21 promises. Faith cries out to God and demands that He fix everything, everything that is broken. And here's the thing. In His Son, he has, and he will. In his victory over Satan, sin, and death, Jesus Christ is God's yes. Jesus Christ is God's yes to our cry of desperation. I am, and I will. You know, John the Beloved, he's the one who gave us the book of Revelation. It was communicated to him, John the beloved likely struggled with the same doubts and the same questions that we have. John was Jesus's boy. They were tight. John was in the inner circle along with Peter and James. He was faithful to Jesus such that he would would suffer all for the sake of the gospel. He was there standing next to Jesus's mother when Jesus was on the cross. So what gives, Lord Jesus? Why all this trouble and tribulation? Why does John find himself exiled on the island of Patmos? Why allow your servant to suffer such harm? Rather than tell him exactly why, the Lord Jesus shows him the end, the extent of his victory. He shows him the fruit of his suffering and his resurrection. A new heaven and new earth. The text says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. This first heaven and first earth were so marred by sin, but it has now been made new. There's a second heaven and earth where there is no sea. That's pretty curious what is this talk about the sea? We kind of need the sea, don't we? We need water. Well, in ancient cultures, the sea was, the sea was actually a struggle, or it was a symbol for man's struggle against the dark forces. Uh, In Revelation 13, the, the dragon and the beast come from where? They come out of the sea, right? They come out of the sea to wage war against God's people. It was seen as a place of terror and judgment. And for the Jews, it represented this great gulf, this chasm between men and their creator. In the new heavens and the new earth, that gulf, that struggle against evil is no more. That's what's meant by the sea. What else goes away in the new heaven and the new earth? Death goes away. Grief and sadness goes away. Crying and tears go away. Pain and all the former things that are connected to the effects of sin go away. Poof. To relate it more to your situation, COVID goes away. Your addictions go away. Your health problems go away. The sorrow that you feel over the people that you've had to say goodbye to Go away. Your uneasiness with our geopolitical situation goes away. Inflation goes away. The Texas heat goes away. It's good to smile about it. That's the promise that we have, down to the most minute detail. God himself makes his dwelling with his people. The new Jerusalem, the bride, the church that we sang uh, just a few moments ago. The fellowship that we had with God in the Garden of Eden when when we walked with God in the cool of the day. that That fellowship, that closeness will be restored completely. And if that's hard to believe given your present circumstances, let John tell you what he heard from God. He said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It is done. What is the meaning behind the evil things that you suffer today? What is the meaning behind them? I cannot tell you. But I can tell you what it cannot mean. It cannot mean that God doesn't love you or that he's abandoned you. He has pledged his love for you in the word and in the sacraments where he gives life, salvation, and he gives the life of the world to come. That future new heaven and new earth is a reality in this place when we come together, when we gather around Jesus and his good gifts. We'll talk about it more next week, but it's almost like Jesus coming to us from the future that is already a reality and saying, hey, I'm from the future. Let me give you a taste of it. And what is to become of evil? That was the great problem that I've been waxing about, right? That's what we want to be dealt with, yeah? The problem of evil. Where God dwells, evil cannot dwell. Verse 8 says this. We didn't read it earlier, but here's what verse 8 says. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. If you're wondering what God plans to do about all this mess and all the evil that you see in the world, there's your answer. Now, for those who have rejected Christ, these words ought to serve as a wake-up call. Turn from evil, trust in your Lord, the one who bought you with his blood, the one who earnestly desires to dwell with you in the new heaven and the new earth. But for you people, I love saying that, you people, for you people, the baptized children of God, your sins have been washed away by the blood of the lamb. He has saved you from a future without hope by his dying on the cross and by his resurrection. He has given you his kingdom as a gift and he promises to preserve you in that kingdom until the very end, come hell or high water. And I'm not cursing. I mean that literally. Your savior has a plan for evil. It's to wad it up and toss it into the lake of fire. But the plans he has for you and the new creation make this evil that we suffer in this life seem like a blip on the radar, a minor inconvenience. That's what Romans 8 says. I'll leave you with this. St. Augustine, <clears throat> the 4th uh, fourth, fourth century church father, uh, St. Augustine, 4th, four, 5th century. Uh, he was looking out over the Mediterranean Sea one day. He was the Bishop of Hippo. Uh, over in Africa. He was looking out on the Mediterranean Sea and there was this incredible sight. He writes about it. And you know what he said about that sunset? Here's what he said. If these are the beauties afforded to sinful men, what does God have in store for those who love him? The next beautiful thing that you see this week, admire it. And then think about what your Lord has waiting for you in the new heaven and the new earth. Remember his suffering. Remember his cross, his resurrection for you. Think upon his glorified body. Think upon the scars in his hands and in his feet and in his side and hear him say from his word, behold, I am making all things new. That's his promise for you today. You may not understand everything that he's doing in the world. That's not for you to know. You only need to trust him. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen.